Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Graymere Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at graymere.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Graymere Church of Christ. If you'd like to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, that's where we're going to be spending some time tonight. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, it is good to be together, to have had a uh, a full uh, Sunday where we uh, can gather together. Uh, that's uh, always a blessing, but when weather is severe, sometimes it makes you appreciate that blessing a little bit more. Uh, and there are a lot of things that are going on right now that are, are really exciting. There's something about Sunday nights when we've got last leaders practices that are beginning. We have our Graymere Kids group that's meeting, our 1210 uh, group that's meeting in the Yak. There's just a lot that's going on. I'm thankful uh, for all of that, and we have a lot coming up to look forward to. Uh, one of the updates to our announcements this morning is that the ladies' brunch, which is coming up on Saturday, that was planned to be at Graymere Hall, uh, because there's been such a large group of people who want to participate, and the number uh, continues to grow, so that's going to actually be in the fellowship hall uh, rather than uh, the lodge. And so just make that note in your mind, that brunch will be in the fellowship hall, uh, and that also leaves room for more to sign up. And so uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, and if you want to find out more, you can find that out at our website. You can also uh, look in the foyer to some of the sign-ups there if you want to sign up to bring a dish. But uh, that's going to be a wonderful opportunity for service. And then on Sunday, we're going to have our Open Door Sunday. Uh, and that is going to be uh, a great time for us to hear from Juan Abanto and the work that's taking place in Peru uh, that's really exciting, uh, and it's been uh, several years since Juan's been able to be with us, and so that'll be great to get to uh, make that connection again. And then also Josh Austin will be sharing a uh, word with us about the work taking place in Arizona, and it's always a blessing to have uh, Josh here. And so uh, I, I hope that we can be thinking not just about how we can be encouraged, because we will be encouraged by hearing what's going on, but think about the encouragement we can give to these individuals who are working uh, and dealing with uh, a lot of things that, that we might not even know about or we might not have to deal with. What can we do to encourage them and help uh, sort of recharge uh, their, their batteries as they're here with us? And so I hope that's something that, uh, that we can keep in mind and look forward to. I appreciated uh, Doug reaching out to uh, think about songs and here's the challenge that we had. Uh, the topic for tonight was going to be about uh, what happens when the church tolerates false teaching. And there aren't a lot of songs about that. Uh, they're just, there's just not a lot in that. Uh, and, uh, and so we've, I've tried to give it more of, uh, I guess, looking at the other side of that coin. What does it mean to hold on to what's true? But that's what we're going to spend our time uh, doing. I mentioned at the outset of this Revelation series uh, that one of the reasons that we wanted to make sure uh, we had it earlier in the year uh, is because that was going to be the theme of uh, the Fried Hardeman Lectureship. And it just so happened that one of the things uh, that I'll have the opportunity to speak about is what happens when churches tolerate false teaching. And I thought, wow, well, I, I might need to get a little head start on this. And so if you don't mind, we'll be going through some of these thoughts 
and that also saves you time because if, if you were wanting to listen online, you, you'll already have heard it by the time uh, it, it gets there. But we want to think about something that's not an easy topic for us to consider. It might not be one that we would choose if we could pick what we want to spend our time thinking about. But sometimes that means those are the things we should be exploring. Those are the things we should be delving into. What is it like when we have to figure out, okay, what is the truth of God's Word? And then how do we respond when there's something that happens, when there's a a real rubber-meets-the-road kind of issue, and we have to say, no, we've got to stick with what God's Word says. This morning in our Bible class, I shared a story uh, about uh, one of those conversations that happened when we were in college on a mission trip in Thailand, sitting across from a student who was learning about God, learning about much of this information in the Gospels for the first time, and was feeling very positive about everything and reacting very positively. And she said, this is good. I like this. I can know about God and Jesus. I can pray to God and Jesus. And I can pray to Buddha. Now that took me by surprise. That's not something that had ever come up in my Bible classes growing up. Now, we had done preparation before we went over there. We knew it was a predominantly Buddhist nation. We had done all the team training and preparation work. We had passed the Buddhist monks that would be on the streets as we were walking to the building where we were going to work each day. But it hadn't really hit me in that particular way until I was looking at someone that I'd been teaching about the Bible and was left thinking, how do I make sure that she understands the truth of God's Word, but how do I do it in a way that reflects love and grace? Now, obviously, this is not something that's solved in one conversation. And so we had Christians there that were part of the church there. They were doing follow-up Bible studies. This was going to need to be a series of studies and conversations. But I mentioned that one moment because it was like one of those times where you're just hit in the face with the reality that there will be times when the truth of God's Word isn't going to be exactly what the person I'm talking to believes and practices. And then what do we do? How do we handle it? And you don't have to go across the world to have those conversations. We have to have those conversations here. Sometimes we have to have those moments with ourselves where we say, you know, here's what I've always thought, but what does Scripture say? And sometimes we have to have those moments with other people that we care about very deeply. And I'm not talking here about differences of opinion. I'm not talking about times when someone might be in a Bible class or a sermon and and misstate something or misspeak. I'm very thankful for patience of people who understand when I say something I didn't mean to say or it comes out the wrong way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those moments. Maybe there's something that's being avoided or ignored, maybe even accepted. It's got to be confronted, and we've got to say, hey, let's look at what Scripture has to say. Let's deal with this. Maybe it's something that is being promoted or being taught. Something said that's not consistent with God's Word, and we've got to say, whoa, wait a minute. Let's deal with this. It's a challenge. It's not something we even like to think about, but it's not a new challenge. Revelation 2 reminds us of that. In fact, while there are seven churches that are dealt with in chapters 2 and 3, and we spent time with these uh, churches not too long ago on Sunday nights, there are a couple in particular 
that we're dealing with this temptation to sort of let some things go that really didn't need to be happening. And Christ and his message to them addresses them pretty seriously about it. The first took place in Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was shaped by the Roman Empire. And you can imagine how difficult it would have been in the first century to understand the message of Christianity that wasn't just about adding another God to the pantheon of gods that you served, but about there being only one God. That would have been hard to hear. It would have been a little bit like the student I was sitting across from in Thailand trying to understand a completely different worldview. And many of them, you can imagine, would have been raised worshiping in pagan temples, worshiping idols, and now they've become Christians. And so now they've got to wrestle with, I can't just do what I've always done. I've got to radically change my life. And so Pergamum, which was a major military area, a center for emperor worship. In fact, in Revelation 2, when Jesus addresses the church there, he describes their, the place where they live as where Satan dwells, where Satan's throne is. And historians have tried to figure out, well, what is that referring to? Is, is that referring to the center of the worship of the emperor or of Asclepius that was there or of Zeus? And no matter what answer you come up with, I think we can safely say that in Pergamum, there were so many options to serving God, it was like that's where Satan lived. It's like that's where he was. There were all kinds of distractions to serving only God. And there were people who were faithful there. One of them is pointed out in Revelation 2, Antipas, someone who gave his life for his faith. But there are some harsh words that Jesus has for the church in Pergamum. And so if you're in Revelation chapter 2, we won't read the whole letter, but we'll highlight what we read starting in verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sins of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's his message to Pergamum. There's some serious issues, and he uses some images to describe those issues. One is from the Old Testament, as he describes Balaam, some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now keep in mind we're in Revelation, we're in uh, symbolic territory. But if we look through the book of Numbers and we try to figure out, okay, we know about Balaam when he's, he's asked to curse Israel and he can't. God doesn't allow him. But then if you look in Numbers chapter 24 and then later in chapter 31, it does seem that Balaam's advice, chapter 31 specifically links it to Balaam's advice, was that if you're going to get the Israelites off track, if you want to distract them, you distract them by having the men of Israel starts to intermarry with Moabite women who don't serve God and who can turn their hearts to idols. And so in this first passage we're looking at in Revelation, we see that Pergamum is dealing with idolatry and immorality. Those two tend to go hand in hand. When I put another Lord in place of the Lord, I'm going to start living a different kind of life. My Lord and my life are closely connected. And so the God I'm serving and the actions that I'm 
committing in my life are going to be closely connected. So there's idolatry and immorality there. And he describes it by linking it to Balaam. He also describes the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is harder for us to isolate, but it does seem like it's pretty closely related to what would have been happening with Balaam, that there were people in Pergamum that were following the kind of Balaam advice, which is we can sort of allow this other worship that's taking place, whether it was worship to another god or to another emperor, we can put other things in the same plane as God. And notice what we see in verse 16. Christ says, Therefore repent, for I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. In the Old Testament, in Exodus and in Ezekiel, the punishment for idolatry was the sword. This was serious. And this is a striking image of Jesus. In chapter 1, this is the image that causes John, the apostle that served Jesus, that learned from him to fall down at his feet as if dead. This is a striking image. And it's to be striking to us. That's how serious things were with the church in Pergamum. Now, it's worth noting, if you're in Revelation 2, that the phrasing here uh, reminds us that not everybody felt this way. Not everybody was doing this. He says in verse 14, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, you have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It wasn't everybody, but it was a significant group. And it needed to be addressed. And then you get to the next letter in the line of letters to the churches in Ephesus, Thyatira. Now, we know less about Thyatira than we do about Pergamum. But even though we don't know much about the city itself, uh, the Roman historian Pliny dismissed it as unimportant, even though we don't know much about the city, we do know something about the Christians there. And when we read that letter, we find out there are Christians there who are working hard, and some of the things that they're doing are even better than the things they had been doing. It looks like things are going in the right direction. But then there are some harsh words there that Christ has. He says in verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. There's that connection again. Idolatry and immorality. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into a great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Talk about vivid language. Again, the message to both of them is repentance. That's his message to the church in Pergamum and in Thyatira. When we think of repentance, we often think about what happens right before we decide to become a Christian. We turn our lives around. And that's an important time of repentance. But we're also reminded here, there are times when Christians who have been baptized and who are serving, there are times when Christians are doing things that we need to repent of. And in each case, it's not everybody in the congregation, but there are some there that are being addressed. And he even said that this prophetess, who's described by the name Jezebel here, 
If you're thinking about Old Testament imagery, if you wanted to signal that someone is a danger to God's people, that would be a name that reminded them of Ahab and Jezebel. And he says that she's teaching things, claiming to be a prophetess, and it's not true. And she'd been given time to repent, but was choosing not to. And there were going to be some serious consequences for her and for those who followed her teaching. So if we're looking at these two examples, I just want to ask ourselves a couple of questions tonight. First is, what can we learn about dealing with teaching that isn't true? Uh, untruths, things that aren't accurate. I, I, I hesitate even to use the word false teaching because that seems it's kind of loaded with a lot of other ideas and baggage. But how do we deal when there's something that's not true? How do we deal with it? And then to ask about these specific examples. What about idolatry and immorality? How are we prepared to deal with that in the 21st century? Now, I know there are multiple temptations we might face But let me just share, these are a few temptations that I could see. You see them in Scripture, and I think we see them in our own lives when it comes to teaching that's not true. And one of the temptations we might have is to just say, okay, I'm going to dismiss the concept altogether. I'm going to deny that there's even such a thing as something that's false, that there's even such a thing as a teaching that needs to be addressed. This is kind of the mode of culture today. This is where we are. Uh, Kind of in the name of tolerance. It's not just a tolerance that says, I want to live at peace with everyone. It's a tolerance that says, no, you need to have everyone's opinion be equally valid, equally true. You, You don't need to be able to say, oh, I'll just be peaceful with people I disagree with. You need to say, no, what their belief is right, it's just as good as my belief. That's kind of the common sense in our culture today. And so it's a lot easier to say, you know, there's just, there's really the things we used to care about, the things we used to think about, uh, the things that we thought made the church distinctive. I just don't know if it's all that important. And I'm just going to take a step back and I'm really going to deny the concepts that there's any kind of teaching that could be false. If I do that, I'll probably be rewarded by our culture. It's the path of least resistance. It's good. It's the, the good part about it or the tempting part about it might be that it avoids conflict. I don't have to have a conflict with anyone if I say that everyone's idea is equally good. I don't ever have to have a discussion with someone else about a religious matter that can be difficult and hard. In fact, if you listen to discourse in our culture today, you hear a lot of things like, well, you just don't understand their perspective. You, you could never know what life was like for this person or this person's point of view. It's almost as if all truth is now subjective. And so I can have mine and you can have yours, but there can't be anything that exists outside my lived experience and your lived experience. That's this temptation. That we just sort of deny the concept of false teaching. And it's this kind of strategy that you see in the kings, many of the kings of Israel and Judah, that would allow the altars and the high places to other gods to just kind of coexist there, just sort of be there, and, and we're, we're not going to take those down, we're not going to destroy them, the, the influence of the gods other nations served just sort of remained. Sometimes uh, we would see this happening even in places like 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church in Corinth, there's some immorality that's going place there, it's taking place there, it's not even accepted among the pagans, and yet you're not addressing it. 
Or maybe even worse, the Christians at Corinth were accepting it. That's that kind of strategy. It's not that important. Let's, let's just not address that sort of thing. And yet, these letters are a striking reminder that the truth matters a great deal and that there are ways that I can stray from the truth that in so doing, there will be serious consequences. Now keep in mind the categories that are used here. Idolatry and immorality. I don't, I don't see anybody's uh, opinion or my opinion ranked up there in the same category. This is idolatry, serving another God, and immorality, living against God's plan. Those are the things that have to be dealt with. Those are the categories of teaching that have to be dealt with. In fact, listen to the way Scripture describes teaching that isn't true. False teaching. And, and as we do, I'm just reminded of the way in which parents talk to children. And as children grow up and you're trying to help them understand whether it's uh, being out in public for the first time or whether it's driving for the first time, you, you're giving them these instructions. Please remember this. Don't forget this. And you can feel that urgency in your voice. Listen if you can hear some of that same urgency in the New Testament. Describing savage wolves who won't spare the flock and will distort truth. Ignorant, unstable people, rebellious, detestable, disobedient, secretly introducing destructive heresies. This is serious language. And so what I don't want to do is deny that there's any kind of, of false teaching that has to be uh, addressed. Or that there's ever a time we have to sit down and say, you know, we really need to talk about this. I can't deny the concept. Another temptation we might have would be to define the content of what false teaching is. I get to determine what is in the category of false teaching. It's like the old joke about the three umpires who were together and they're talking about calling balls and strikes. And one says, well, I just call them like I see them. And the second one says, you might call them like you see them. I call them like they are. And then the third one says, well, I don't know about you two guys, but they ain't nothing till I call them. I'm the one who decides balls and strikes. I'm the one who decides what the rules are. And so this temptation would be, I get to determine what the content is. Yes, false teaching exists, and I get to call it. And if you have any questions, you can just let me know, and I'll tell you. This is a temptation when we have opinions. And we have opinions about things we care about, and so it's natural that we would say, well, I can determine what the content of false teaching is. In fact, I can decide that anyone that I disagree with about anything, I'm going to treat all those matters as equally important. And so I get to determine the content of false teaching, and I can say that in the same group that's dealing with issues of salvation, I'm going to throw in what I think about what kind of Bible translation you should use. Or, or what I think about what uh, someone should wear to worship, or just whatever, you know, fill in the blank of some of our own things that we might feel strongly about, but you might say, does this fit in the category, the big category of idolatry or immorality? How serious is this? It's a desire to take truth seriously, but it has the unintended consequence of raising my uh, traditions the things I'm holding on to, not the traditions I, I don't like, but the ones I do like, putting them on that same level. This is the same approach we see the religious teachers, the Jewish religious teachers in Jesus' day doing when they were trying to bind their Sabbath traditions as if they were law. It's what we see happening when Paul writes to the church in Galatia 
where there were Christians who were saying, well, in order to become a Christian, you also have to keep all of these boundary markers uh, from the Jewish faith that even though we don't live under that covenant, you still have to do what we do. And Paul's pretty clear when he writes to the Christians there. He says, if you add to the gospel, that's not really another gospel. It's no gospel at all. I don't want to fall into the category of determining the content. I don't want to slide in my opinions. I want to look at what we see in Scripture. And there's another temptation we could have. And that is we could fixate on the conflict that comes when you're dealing with false teaching. You could decide, I'm, I'm really wanting to deal with this conflict. And if you think about the world we live in today, we live in a world that thrives on conflict. There's a reason that we know things about what one famous person thinks about another famous person in this certain area and what someone posted on Twitter and how another person responded and what one head coach said in a press conference and what another player said and then what that player's relative said. We know all of these things because our culture is fueled by this sort of conflict and we're even rewarded in our culture by stoking the flames of conflict instead of trying to address them. If someone's wanting to get a lot of followers on social media... Good, positive messages probably won't do it, at least not very quickly. But what could really get a lot of followers is if you stir up a conflict with someone else, particularly someone else who has a lot of followers. And then you've got people who are following just for the conflict. That's a human temptation. And it would be possible, when we're thinking about teaching, to fixate on the conflict involved with false teaching. That it becomes all-consuming. And then I'm trying to seek out people that I can call out, and I'm going to call them by name, and you're doing this, and I want to deal with it. I want to fix that problem. In fact, it's possible that I could make it my mission, that I'm just going to police everything that's going on everywhere, everything that's happening in every congregation, and it would be to the detriment of my own faith. But does that sound like what we see in Scripture? Does that sound like the approach Jesus discusses in Matthew 18 when you have an issue, when someone has a problem with you, when you have an issue that you go and address it with that person? Does that sound like what Aquila and Priscilla do when Apollos is teaching? And Apollos is teaching publicly, and he doesn't have the complete story. He's publicly talking about Jesus, but he only knows the, he only knows the, the baptism of John the Baptist. He doesn't understand the full baptism of Jesus. And so he's, he's saying things that are incomplete, and he's saying them publicly. Instead of confronting him publicly, Aquila and Priscilla take him aside privately. And Apollos is used in a powerful way by God. And one of the elements of that process, I believe, was the fact that he was willing to listen, but also the fact they were willing to address him. See, if I'm focused on the conflict, I don't go straight to the person. I go straight to social media. I go straight to everybody else. I'm going to tell everybody else about what this person, what this group, what that those people are doing over here, and I'm going to make it a big ordeal. And as I do, as I point out how wrong they are, I'm also going to be subtly reminding everyone how right I am. It's a human temptation to focus on the conflict. It's the kind of thing that Paul would address in his letters. In Titus, he warns Titus about foolish controversies and strife that's unprofitable, fractious people whose actions have to be addressed. Paul had his own opponents. He had his own people that were attacking his credibility. 
and attacking his, he's not, he doesn't have a powerful speaking voice. He's not one of the original 12 that were with Jesus. Whatever the accusations might be, Paul had to deal with that conflict. And what we notice in Scripture is that truth is so important that when it comes to truth, there are going to be times there will be conflict. There'll be friction. If there's a matter of truth that we have to deal with, there might be conflict along the way. But what we don't see in Scripture are Christians who are seeking out the conflict. We see them seeking out truth, willing to deal with the personal conflict when it comes, but they're not just seeking out that conflict. In fact, someone might say, you know, there are times in, in Paul's letters where, where Paul called people by name. He, called, he named names. He said, you've got to do this, and he would tell you exactly who needed to change. And that's true. There are times that that happened. But I want us to think about what we see in Scripture. A couple of weeks ago, I had a little bit of uh, extra time at home. Maybe uh, you had some of that extra time as well. And I just went through and I counted up the total number of verses in the letters that Paul writes to churches. The letters that Paul writes to the churches in the New Testament. I just counted up the total number of verses. Uh, I count, my total was 1,765. I may have missed one or two in there. But of those verses, I went back through and then I tried to count the times that Paul singles out people. Whether it's the individual who's caught in, adult, who's caught in immorality in 1 Corinthians 5 uh, as uh, he's committing uh, adultery with his, his, his stepmother and there's all these uh, things that need to be dealt with. There's the same, maybe the same individual, maybe someone else in 2 Corinthians that has to be dealt with. Yodi and Syntyche to the church at Philippi. Even Peter himself in Galatians, Paul stands up to Peter. And I counted the number of times that Paul specifically called someone out by name. It made up approximately 1% of the verses I looked at. I counted three times as many mentions of specific people whose faith Paul's describing, complimenting, or thanking God for. That's interesting, isn't it? Three times as many moments where Paul points out what God is doing in people's lives and what he's grateful for in people's lives. If I'm focusing on the conflict, I'm not sure that I'm following Paul's example. In fact, when you add First and Second Timothy and Titus to that number, the number bumps up to about 1.2%. Even the letter to Philemon, which is written by Paul to address a serious issue with a brother in Christ, it contains compliments for his brother in Christ, how much he cares about him. It's not a focus on the conflict, it's a focus on the truth. And yes, when there's friction, when there's conflict, he's going to deal with it. But if I spend a majority of my time looking for people to condemn and name names and say, well, this is going on over here, if that's a majority of my time, there, I may be doing that for a number of reasons, but it won't be because I'm following Paul's example. In scripture. And so I could do each of these three. I could decide there's no such thing as any teaching that would be false. Or I could decide I get to decide the categories. I draw the circles. I draw the lines of what's false teaching and what isn't. Or I could just seek out the conflict. Those are temptations. But if we were reminded of the letters that we've read, if we're reminded of Jesus' address, notice what happens here. I can't read Revelation chapter 2 and deny the concept that false teaching exists. I've got to recognize the reality. I've got to recognize that we live in a world that we are going to deal with ideas that aren't true. 
that our children are going to hear things on TV or hear things at school. We're going to overhear conversations that just aren't true. Recognize the reality. There are things being said and promoted that aren't true. I can't hide from that. I can't run from that. I need to recognize that reality. There were probably people in Pergamum or in Thyatira who thought, isn't it good enough if we worship on Sunday? Maybe we can do some of this idol worship that we grew up with, but isn't just getting together on Sunday, isn't that good enough? That was the pressure. They needed to recognize the reality of that. There were some who said, you know, just saying Caesar is Lord, wouldn't that be good enough? I mean, I'll worship on Sunday, but I've got to say what I've got to say uh, to just sort of get through the day. And so it shouldn't really matter who I'm pledging my allegiance to. Isn't that good enough? We need to recognize that reality that exists in our own day. If you ever listen to sports talk or you see people uh, discuss different uh, things, who's the greatest player of this era or over here, one of the things that comes up is, well, so-and-so really needs to be in the conversation. You know, so-and-so's good enough. I'm not saying he's the best. He needs to be in the conversation. One message that Scripture makes clear, and Revelation 2 makes clear, is that we serve a God who's not just in the conversation of the most important influence in our lives. He is the one we serve. We've got to recognize that reality. Not only that, but we need to be willing to allow God to determine the content of false teaching. Let God define it. There's a great deal of pressure to say that God's way isn't the only way. Just as there was then. But if I'm going to allow God to guide me, He defines that content and says salvation isn't found in any other name but Jesus. There's pressure in our world to allow other things, other good things, to become idols in our life. Idols aren't always bad things. They're often good things. It's a subtler form of idolatry. But we're still called to seek His kingdom first. There's pressure for us to say things are true and say things that are right that we don't read in Scripture. And there's a pressure that if we don't say those things, if if I don't start saying what the world around me says about sexuality, for example, if, if I'm holding to a biblical understanding of man and woman and marriage and commitment and sex reserved for marriage, then won't I be seen as just outdated and outmoded and on the wrong side of history? No, God defines the content of what's true and what isn't. I have to stick with His Word. If I start taking the approach that I decide I'm the expert of who's wrong and right in a specific group, I need to remind myself, no, God makes that call, not me. And then when I'm sitting down, if we have to have conversations with someone, it's not me telling someone else what to do, it's both of us looking at Scripture saying, here's what we need to do. God defines the content And God guides the response. God guides the response to teaching. Even as we see these harsh words in Revelation 2, did you notice there's still repentance there? There's still the possibility. Even with this false prophetess in Thyatira, there was still the possibility. I gave her time to repent. What God wants is repent. Repentance is the goal. And so not only does God define the content, He defines our response. Our response should be, we want what's best. We want repentance for someone else. We want them to come back. We don't want to prove ourselves right to the point 
that we've turned them off to any future conversation or any future hope of studying God's Word. We need to recognize the reality of teaching. We need to let God define the content, but also to guide our response. Our motivation is repentance and love. My motivation is not winning an argument. My motivation is not looking good on Facebook when I post something religiously that really puts someone else in their place. My motivation is love because I care about someone else. And whether that's a conversation that happens in person, whether that's a conversation that happens through text, email, online, whatever the forum, do I understand there is serious teaching that I need to be able to recognize and say, hey, that doesn't go with what God's Word says. But He's the one who defines what's in that category. And chances are, I might have some opinions that I feel strongly about that God hasn't put in the category of false teaching. And I need to recognize that. And then we allow God to guide our response. I understand, again, this is a topic maybe uh, not all of us would have, uh, have picked for an uplifting, energetic uh, lesson on a Sunday night. But it is important for us. It's important because we need to know how to navigate in the world around us and to be reminded we don't have to do it alone. It may be that tonight you need to respond to the invitation from God. Determined by God, not by us. But an invitation for you to become part of His kingdom. The kingdom we've been studying about all month. If you'd like for us to study more with you, if, you'd li- if you're ready now to make that decision to put Christ on in baptism, we'd love to celebrate that with you. It may be that there's a need you have for prayer, for encouragement, or some other way that we can help you. If there's any way we can encourage you tonight, please let us know as we stand and as we sing together.